Thank you, Pastor Bobby. I'm going to, I'm still trying to settle myself because I, there's some, still some deconstructing I need to do within me because I don't always want to respond to stuff like that pastorally. <laughs> so I realize I still got some, some work to do. Um, I got a lot to say and I already know I'm not going to get through all of it in the time allotted for me. So forgive me if I maybe skip through, jump through a little bit. Um, I want to talk to you. First of all, I want to acknowledge the um, what January said. She said it was a tough week, an Asian-American woman. So I want to say the name of, of the young lady who was killed in, in New York, Christina Yuna Lee. Um, even now, as I say it and think about what happened, I still, I'm as, as angry and have grieved as much as I did seeing a, an unarmed Black person being shot and killed. Um, so I grieve with my Asian American brothers and sisters, um, all of us should be this week. I don't want to skip past that. Um, yeah. Today, um, I want to do less preaching and asking more questions because the passage I'm going to dive into, and I don't know why I picked this passage. I tried to change it two days ago, um, but I have more questions than I have statements. Um, I want to talk to you about the frames that you wear, the frames, the glasses, the lens that you see through, particularly when you interpret scripture, when you interpret culture, when you interpret the other or even yourself. The Miseducation of Us All is the title of this message, The Miseducation of Us All. Carter G. Woodson penned the book, The Miseducation of the Negro in 1933. And the premise of his book is that the Negro, through the teaching of the oppressor, was taught to despise him or herself. Even educated African-Americans were taught to despise the less educated among them. They were taught to admire their white counterparts. Woodson writes, to handicap a student by teaching him that his black face is a curse and that this struggle to change his condition is hopeless is the worst sort of lynching. When I was young, I watched the local news. I'm from South Carolina and I watched the local news each night with my grandmother or my grandfather, probably my grandmother because my grandfather always fell asleep in his lazy boy before the news came on. So I would sit with my grandma and watch the news. And every night I saw in the news, black men of all ages having committed a crime in the nearby city of Charleston, South Carolina. And this was going on almost every day. And it got to the point where I was afraid to go to Charleston. I was afraid to even visit the city because I felt like, I, and I was a kid at this time, and I felt like maybe I'm gonna run into one of those guys that are committing all those crimes. Never really saw the faces of white criminals, just the black ones. And I realized later on that I was, I had a disdain and a fear for my own people in that city, not my hometown or others, other places, but in that city. In fact, I lived in this tension of understanding my own, uh, being assured of my own um, humanity, value, worth, 
but also questioning it because of what I saw. Would I end up like those guys? It was the miseducation of Phil by the media. And my miseducation continued with the school, by, with school by the omission of black figures, accomplishments, excellence, history in our textbooks. Fortunately, I had resources presented to me outside of school to combat that education. I have been deconstructing since I was a kid. So the self-love and hate was the tension I lived in. Fortunately, self-love and assuredness won out. I'm not sure if that is true for all, all of us who've navigated this miseducation project knowingly or unknowingly. But the same is true for the miseducation of the American, the Asian American history and experience, the Latino, Latina American experience and history, the indigenous American experience and history, and so on and so on. I believe Jesus was engaged in the work of deconstructing the theological miseducation of the Jews by the Pharisees he engaged them, he engaged with. He pushed back on their interpretations and applications of the law. And as Pastor Bobby has already reminded you of Jesus's words, you have heard it said, but I say. I believe Paul was engaged in deconstructing work as he countered the teaching of the Judaizers. An encounter on the road to Damascus will do that to you. This can be the work of the spirit or the work of personal or collective agenda. Because we all peek through the lens of theological miseducation at least once. We're all wearing some frames with lenses that were prescribed for us by our social and cultural locations. When we deconstruct and hopefully we, when we reconstruct our theology, we are peering through a new set of lenses, new ones old ones, or a combination of the two. Let me say it again. When we reconstruct our theology, we are peering through a set of lenses, either new ones, these are new for me, or old ones, these are my old glasses. I see a little differently through these lenses. Or a combination of the two. I want to be careful to deconstruct and reconstruct with wisdom, the wisdom of the spirit and the, and the wisdom of the community, because whoever isolates him or herself seeks his or her own desire. Proverbs 18.1. I want to be careful to deconstruct and reconstruct with the wisdom of the spirit and the wisdom of the community. Because whoever isolates him or herself seeks his or her own desire. Proverbs 18.1. So here's my take home thought. We all wear interpretive lenses given to us by the culture we embrace. In other words, we all wear cultural glasses to interpret. I might repeat that throughout this. We all wear interpretive lenses given to us by the culture we embrace. In other words, we're all wearing glasses. The miseducation of the Christian, particularly as it relates to African-Americans, began with a short, a short passage in Genesis Genesis 9, I'm going to read 25 and 27 only for the sake of time. And Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be for his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan 
be his servant. This verse, along with verses like Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, were appropriated to justify the enslavement of black people. Even some African-American clergy be, believed this teaching as a fact. And it's no coincidence that this interpretation was popularized or gained even more momentum just as the transatlantic African slave trade was created and gained its momentum. So this is one of the church's contributions to the theory of race and justification of slavery and oppression directed towards African and even indigenous people. Senator James Byrd, a former recruiter for the KKK, used this passage in the longest speech in the longest filibuster to oppose the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a former recruiter of the KKK, a senator in the U.S. Congress. He believed the myth that all of Ham's descendants of Africa were destined to perpetual slavery based on the curse upon Canaan because of Ham's actions toward his father when he was inebriated. Byrd was a senator until 2009, just a few years ago. And so the reason why we all must be mindful and reflect on the theology that emerged from this misinterpretation of this passage is because it forces all of us to have to locate ourselves in this racially stratified society. This verse is part of the, the construction of the hierarchy, the stratification of society that we experience today. So all of us have to locate ourselves within that. And this is not to centralize the black experience exclusively navigating this type of nonsense, but between the black white binary are Asians and Latina, Latinas, Latino, Latinas, and indigenous people and others who find themselves somewhere on the spectrum or in the hierarchy of US American society. Where you find yourself may shed light on how you have come to view those at the top of the so-called hierarchy and those at the bottom and how you may come to view yourself. Most importantly, how you've come to view God. How do you view God? How do you view yourself? Let's go back to those lenses we talk about, those frames we talk about. How do you view others based on what you were taught? Based on the glasses you wore or may still wear? On top of this passage, for me as a kid, seeing a white Jesus in church caused more inner tension for me. It subconsciously made me believe God was white and white was the best. And as a black kid, I had to work hard to be good and accepted as white people. All this because of what I was taught or shown and because of what I was not taught and not shown so just as important as what the text does say is what the text does not say. Here's what the text does not say. Ham, number one, Ham was not cursed. His progeny was cursed. He was not cursed by God, but by Noah. Maybe Noah woke up in anger or awakened from his drunken stupor um, and he's re reacting like a father would. Apparently, how, how could you do that to me? and he cursed Canaan. Race or skin color was never mentioned in the text. It's implied by interpreters. Canaan, who received the curse, would not have been Ham's son with African descendants. In fact, 
as it related to the sons who would, who would dwell in the land of Africa, Cush, Egypt, and Put, he did not curse them. My question is, why did he curse Canaan and not the rest of Ham's sons? And somehow, in the midst of that interpretive gymnastics, the African, those of African descent were the ones that were supposed to be in, in perpetual slavery. Here's another question. Does Noah's curse override God's covenant? God promised a covenant earlier in the chapter. Does Noah's curse of Canaan override God's promise of covenant with the people? Does God's covenant permit the enslavement of people groups? I don't know if that's a covenant that I want to be a part of, if I'm honest. Is that God's will? I'm in covenant with you, but you're going to be a slave in, this, in the economy of my covenant, you're going to be a slave. Your people will be a slave. I don't know if that's a covenant I want to be a part of. And so much of the myth is centered around the etymology or the origin of the names Ham and Yafeth. This is what undergirds the misinterpretation of the text and the miseducation of the Christians at the hands of white supremacy. I'll focus here on a thin understanding or the etymology of the uh, etymology of these words that grounded this theology or this ideology, I should call it. Ham means hot. So some have used this to infer it's because his descendants dwell in the hot regions of, of the earth, Africa. Ham was believed to be, by some, to be related to the Semitic word that had sexual connotations, meaning to be in heat or sexually excited. This is also a part of the narrative attached to black people even today. Some studies claim that because it related to the Hebrew word that means black, related to the Hebrew word that means black, not that ham means black, it must mean ham was of African descent or dark skin, and many in positions of power and influence believe this was a reference to the skin color of ham and his sons and the area of the world where they, many of them resided, Africa. Yet the text never even talks about race. Not to mention the fact that Canaan and the Canaanites are more closely related in geography and physicality to the Shemites, to the Israelites. On the flip side, the word Yafet or Japhet in, 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 in scripture, in English translation, means opened. But some scholars believe since the Hebrew word yafeh means beautiful and the most beautiful pigmentation was white, yafet must have been the father of the white races and superiority was assigned to him and his progeny. See how we get, see how we get there? But yafet also means to be deceived or to deceive. But I hadn't seen any evidence that that definition was included in the framing of Yafet. I say all this to say, think about the lens that these interpreters, these theologians, these pastors, politicians are coming, are, bringing, are, are seeing the text. What are they bringing to the text? 
There have been considerable amount of linguistic gymnastics to try and figure out if Ham was black and what that meant for slavery of those of African descent. The lens through which this passage was understood was dominated by what sociologist Joe Reagan calls the white racial frame, a way of framing even scripture and yes, even God through the hierarchical lens that prizes white, white skin, white thought, beauty, intellect, civility, morality, and culture above all others. This is not an interpretation conceived by the spirit, but by a collective agenda. But I want you to think about how powerful this was. For hundreds of years, even to this day, there's still the influence of this, the interpretation of this text, the misinterpretation of this text, where negative and positive values were attached to color. Think about that. We're going back hundreds of years. We're going back 400 plus years of this text being interpreted in such a way where it has influenced generation after generation after generation. And the narratives are still relevant today. We're still fighting these narratives even today. But as I said, I have more questions to ask about the interpretation of this text that I believe is relevant for us today as we deconstruct and reframe old interpretations. Are we drinking and offering new wine? Or are we offering drinking and offering old wine in new package? Let me say that again. When we deconstruct, because everyone's deconstructing now, and I'm one of them, guilty as charged. But when we deconstruct, are we drinking and offering new wine? Or are we drinking and offering old wine in new package? This assumes, I'm assuming, that we're deconstructing with integrity. So my questions are, for whom does this interpretation serve? This misinterpretation of this passage for hundreds of years, for whom does it serve? And then I ask myself the question, my new interpretation, my new wine, whom does it serve? I have to ask myself these hard questions. So I'm not just asking you, I'm asking me too. Who may be oppressed by it, this interpretation, or my new interpretation? Am I creating a, a, a new oppression or a different oppression? Who might be liberated by it? And who fears that liberation? And how would, could any person or group perpetuate such doctrine and plagiarize God by assigning God's name and character to it? See, that, that thought right there haunts me. It burdens me when I begin to reconstruct and offer new wine and reframe. That reality haunts me. I'm putting God's name on this. So if we deconstruct what has been passed on to us, I offer a few reminders. Number one, deconstruct the cultural lens through which you view and interpret scripture. Don't just deconstruct the doctrine. Deconstruct the cultural lens through which I'm viewing and interpreting scripture. Be willing to think critically about what you bring to the text, even while you deconstruct what, what you believe to be toxic, ungodly, and heretical. How has your own, how has my own cultural influence shaped how I see God? Number two, 
deconstruct the political and social lens through which you view and interpret culture. So I'm not just in deconstructing the text. I'm deconstructing my lens, all the layers of my lens. What allegiances to influ that influence my deconstruction? What political or social allegiances influence my deconstruction? What ideology do you subscribe to or what ideology are you reacting to? Is there an overreaction? I don't want my, my new frame to be an overreaction. Are you swayed by the momentum of the trends? This is what they're saying now. Number three, deconstruct the biased lens through which you view and interpret yourself. I have a habit. I clean these right before the service so I can see y'all clearly. But I have this habit of wearing my glasses for days and I could be sitting down and having coffee or, or lunch with somebody and somebody will be looking. I guess it did. they just can't take it anymore. And they're like, look, Phil, uh, let, let, let me get that. And they'll take my glasses and they'll, they'll wipe them clean. In other words, the lint, the spots, the dirt, the dust has collected over time. And I've worn these glasses every day to the point where they're normal to me. And so my vision has learned to navigate what, what may be obstructing my vision to where I don't even see it anymore. I don't see the dirt. And then I take my glasses off and I'm like, ooh, this is filthy. I'm embarrassed that somebody even sees that much dirt on my glasses. What are your blind spots in your theological frames? Do you check them every time you switch theological lanes? You know how you switch in lanes? And sometimes you, you peep, peep over real quick to check your blind spot and you switch over. But sometimes we don't, if we tell the truth. Sometimes we're in a hurry and we don't switch. We don't, we don't peep over. We just switch lane. We just assume. We look in the side view mirror. We assume the blind spot is clear. I think we do the same thing in our theological lanes. We assume the new lane that we're getting into is clear. And we don't have anybody there to check. I'm a backseat driver. I will check for you. I will, I will be looking for you. you, don't, if you whether you look or not, I'm peeping over to make sure the blind spot is clear. Right? Is it safe or wise for me to get in this other lane? So as I close, I want to be, I want to obey my time, Bobby, Pastor Bobby and Inez. I want to obey my time. In other words, are we willing to deconstruct ourselves or allow others to think and reflect critically with us about what we are offering? Am I willing to consider if there's anything wrong, anything flawed about my new framing? Are we willing to let someone check the dirt on our glasses so we can clean them? Otherwise, here's the danger. Otherwise, we will do the same thing. 
we will employ the same method of those whose doctrines we are deconstructing now. You and I will be guilty of the same pedagogical malpractice of miseducating others if we repeat the mistakes of interpreters that went before us. I don't think it's wise to swing the whole pendulum to the other side if I just don't. I do think there are some doctrines that should be swung to the other side. For instance, I love asking this question in whatever space, I don't care who's in the space, until we are willing to see Jesus as black, we're gonna produce the same fruit. When I say black, I'm not talking black skin necessarily. I'm talking ontologically as James Cone would present, ontologically, experientially black. From the margins, from the, from the community of the oppressed and not tied to power, earthly power, as he's been presented to us in the past, until we're willing to swing that pendulum to the other side and see Jesus as black. And anyone who pushes back, I would say, if you can make Jesus white, you can easily make Jesus black. Can we at least see him as Jewish for a change? Can he at least be brown? With coarse hair? Unattractive? As Isaiah prophesied? No, nothing beautiful about him that we would be attracted to him? I'm paraphrasing a bit. Be careful to not create the same monster in a different disguise. Will you be okay if one day, if you had to one day deconstruct the theology that you have already reconstructed? Deconstructed does not, deconstruction does not just have intellectual implications, but imago day implications. Doctrine formed by our individual and collective interpretive lens can distort the image, the imago day that each person embodies. How does seeing through your lens build up someone or some group as image bearers? May the work that you point others, the work that you do, point others to God without conditions. May the work, of, may your work of wrestling with scripture and the spirit lead to the further construction of community. That's all I got. I said it and I'm sticking to it.